You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Management of non-melanoma skin cancer, chemo prevention, surgical and medical, what tools do we have? How well do they work? So I like reminding myself of what curates are for my different approaches and actinokeratoses as one of those things that the patients with non-melanoma skin cancer typically were also managing those things for people. So defense is the best offense, right? So one of the things I was taught was, well, if you put everyone on topical tretinoin, then you're going to reduce and prevent a lot of skin cancers. And really what we found is that's not true. But we can use vitamin B, not vitamin T, vitamin tretinoin. So defense is, I think, a big part of what I talk to people about when they're coming in for skin cancers. Um, Come on, this is funny. You're doing it wrong. So I think one of the challenges, and I talk to people about with spray sunscreen, because they do love it, is it's not like hairspray. It's not like a light mist you're putting on. You really have to connect the droplets. Um, But yes, we're recommending sunscreen on a regular basis, trying to help people. And I think it's uh, useful for me to know that when it comes to young people and talking to them about skin cancer, when you're young, you are immortal nothing is going to kill you. You will never get cancer. And so giving the message to young people that you need to use sunscreen because you could get cancer, it's like in one ear and out the other. Changing the message from if you use sunscreen, you will look younger longer. Um, Jennifer Garner was just um, captured saying, I look so good at 50 because I use sunscreen at 30. So this is the message that resonates especially with our younger people in terms of trying to get to them and, and getting our population to reduce skin cancer rates. The other thing that's really changed my practice has been incorporating niacinamide. So it is a form of vitamin B3, but it is not niacin. There's a very small uh, chemical change, the incorporation of a nitrogen and hydrogen instead of an oxygen and hydrogen. You just fell asleep. Please wake up. Niacinamide is amazing. Um, I wish I could put it in the water, sell it at my front desk, but I'm at an academic center. We don't sell anything. And that's been part of the problem. I can't get people to get niacinamide. They come in for a skin check. They come in the next year. I'm like, did you get that niacinamide? They're like, no, I couldn't find it. And so we finally got so frustrated And our patients were so frustrated that we called our pharmacy. We said, we're having so much trouble. Can you stock this for us so they can go over and buy it? They said, you can just prescribe it. So I want you to know that you can prescribe a vitamin to the pharmacy. Your patient, just like all their other medications, they can pick it up. It will not be more expensive. Our pharmacy said it would cost anywhere from $7 to $15. And they can get a 90-day supply. So the more pills that we can give people at a time, the less chance there is that they're not going to pick up the next 30-day supply. And the reason why we incorporated this into our practice is because of this data about it reducing the number of non-melanoma skin cancers in people. So both basal cell and squamous cell. This is important because the only other medication that we had for chemo prevention of non-melanoma skin cancers is acetretin, and it only works on squamous cell skin cancer. So having an oral medication that can work on both is really useful since so many of our patients are affected by both skin cancers, and it's not just people who have gone through organ transplants. 
The studies were done in Australia, and they showed that a 500 milligram dose taken twice a day, very well tolerated, again, because this is not niacin, it doesn't cause the stomach upset, the flushing, the headaches that that uh, formulation of B3 can cause. And that was part of the problem. If you look at this bottom bottle, it says vitamin B3, and that's what we're telling our patients. They pick it up not realizing that it's niacin. Uh, niacin is nicotinic acid. We want niacinamide or nicotinamide. So chemo prevention is really important for our patients with organ transplants. And this is a gentleman who had an, an organ transplant. You can see on his head, probably has already four squamous cells uh, on his scalp at the same time. And so the burden, the number of skin cancers that people get when they don't have their immune system functioning uh, like it should so that they can keep their organ, um, their new problem becomes not that they had renal failure or they had uh, hepatic failure. Their new problem is managing all the skin cancers that they get because of that transplant. So B3 is being studied in this population. We have more data with acetretin for the transplant population, but they are working on this. So what are some of the numbers? People with organ transplants, they have 80 times the rate of squamous cell skin cancer than they did before, 16 times the rate of basal cell. So it's not just squamous cells, it's just that's the really risky one and the greater increase, but they do get basal cells as well. And people with organ transplants, um, when they are coming in, uh, this was the study that was done, they'd uh, been on, had their organ transplant for more than a year, and they'd already had more than two non-melanoma skin cancers. They were randomized to nicotinamide at the dose that suggested, but it was a very small group, so they weren't able to show any clinical effect, but they were able to confirm that in this group of people who typically is older and they're on many, many medications, that at least it was a safe medication for them to incorporate. So non-melanoma skin cancers and organ transplant patients, they're very often sent over to our office right after they have the transplant. And it's great to be able to educate them about uh, sun damage. Um, most of them have never had a skin cancer before, which is great. Um, but we're not finding anything in that time right away. So it's much more of an educational visit. When is skin cancer gonna happen? It's usually four to nine years later. So just setting our expectations and theirs, that there's stuff we can do now in preparation, but let's really keep our eye out when we're seeing the clock get to four to nine years. And the people who are more likely after a transplant against a skin cancer are the people who typically get skin cancer anyway. So men, uh, more fair skin types, a history of lots of sun exposure. So we're also seeing a lot more patients sent to our office for skin checks even before transplant. And it's not because they're worried that they have a melanoma and maybe they shouldn't get an organ. It's because they want to know if they already have skin cancers. And we need to know that because if they do have skin cancers even before immunosuppression, they're rate of skin cancers is just going to take off. And so that's a group of people that we do start pre-medicating with some of these chemo preventions, uh, mostly nicotinamide. It's a pretty rare day that we're starting somebody on acetretin even before a transplant. The other thing to keep in mind is that some of the transplant medications are more apt to cause skin cancers than others. So we typically send a letter off to the transplant docs after people have you know, kind of settled in with that organ. We ask if you can lower the immunosuppression at all, if you can take away the mycophenolate, if you can lower the prograft doses, that would be fantastic. If they're having trouble doing that, we ask if they can switch from prograft, so oral tacrolimus, to oral serolimus, where the rates of skin cancer are a lot lower. So 
people with skin cancer, non-melanoma skin cancers and organ transplants, I think of the rule of three. So the three-year risk after organ transplant is about 3%. So remember, most of those skin cancers are happening in years four to nine, but it's important to realize it's low in the first three years. But once they get that first skin cancer, the three years after that, their risk of having a second one is now 33%. So the first three years are pretty quiet, but once you get a skin cancer, the next three years are probably gonna be a little busy. So keep those people close after you found their first skin cancer. And this risk is now less related to uh, their sex, their age of transplantation, and the type of organ. Uh, this is slightly different since most of the time people with uh, organ transplants are on immunosuppression. It's usually related to the duration of their immunosuppression. The longer that they've had no immune system or less of an immune system, the more risk that they have. So acetretin is a big go-to, and I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about organ transplants, but this is where most of the data is, but this is definitely um, something that we can take out into our population of people who have multiple skin cancers, even if they don't have organ transplants. So I'm gonna show you this and then show you, uh, you know, the typical person like in central Pennsylvania, the farmer who's just been in the sun forever and has a thousand skin cancers. What can we do for them? So this is some of the best data we have. And again, it does come from the transplant population. Um, but when people took acetretin, 30 milligrams a day, this is a pretty hefty dose. I typically start at 25 because that's the size of the pill. Um, these patients at, um, Patients with squamous cell, six months later, the number of squamous cells that they had really decreased. So I just want to point to this graph over here. So this is a comparison study. The black bars are the patients who got placebo. The hash bars here are the people who got acetretin. The people on acetretin then stopped it. And their number of skin cancers, they only got two skin cancers during the time that they were on acetretin, compared to the group of people who weren't getting it got 18. So a much higher rate of uh, skin cancer, squamous cell, when you don't get acetretin compared to when you do. And when you stop it, your rate of squamous cell just starts up again. So this medication only works when you're on it. Um, so we do talk to people about the effects of dry skin, dry mouth, we do check their lipids, and since they're already on some medications that can increase their lipids, we watch them a little more closely. Usually every two or three months they're getting a lipid panel. So I want to skip over this um, because this talks about the effect of acetretin in people who are not immunosuppressed, so everyone else. What happens when we give them acetretin? This was a study done in 70 adults who'd had more than two non-melanoma skin cancers in five years. That's a pretty low threshold. I can think of about 90% of my patients who had two non-melanoma skin cancers in the last five months. So they're putting people on this medication pretty quickly. Again, this is 25 milligrams. They took it five days per week, and they did it over a pretty long period of time. Again, typical side effects from oral retinoids with the dry skin mucositis. Uh, typically, I find women are a bit more put off by this side effect and tend to notice it a bit more than men do. But what's interesting is that the number of skin cancers that people got was a bit lower in acetretin. I can tell you anecdotally, I've had some pretty impressive results with this in my patients. I tend to start it in people who seem like they're just getting sick of coming in to see me. 
me. And I don't know if you see that in your patients. Like they're just getting so emotionally exhausted from me finding things to biopsy. Um, and so I tend to talk to them about this as a really nice option. Or if I'm feeling overwhelmed by the number of spots that I have to biopsy and take care of, I talk to them about starting acetretin 25 milligrams. I usually use it every day. Again, this study shows that you can use it five days a week and give them a little bit of a break. Um, I've not had trouble get, getting this approved in the Medicare population. Sometimes I do have to write letters for people who are not in that group. Um, and a lot of times they tolerate it okay. I can think of one gentleman who'd had a stroke, and again, it was just getting really hard for him and his wife to get into the office. I gave him acetretin 25 milligrams a day and just literally everything melted away. He must have been very sensitive to it, but I very rarely had to do biopsies after that. The number of actinic keratoses that I had to freeze really uh, went down. And instead of them dreading the visits, they came in a little more optimistic that he wasn't going to have to be carved up at every visit. So when, when you're overwhelmed, I think this is a really nice option, or when our patients are overwhelmed, this is a nice option. But related to squamous cells, sometimes I'm biopsying these things and I'm thinking this is either a hypertrophic actinic keratosis or it's a squamous cell. And instead I get the answer back, it's neither. It's an atypical squamous proliferation. And I think the dermatopathologist does this just to irk me. Um, because I'm like, what are you telling me? What am I supposed to do with this? Um, and so this is when our pathologist sees atypical epidermal cells, but it's, not a, it's more than what they would call an actinic keratosis. It's not enough for them to call a squamous cell skin cancer. So they're having trouble to char characterizing it, um, or it's because I didn't give them enough skin. That's what dermatopathologists always tell me, well, you didn't give me enough. Um, no, we have a love-hate relationship with our dermatopathologists. I love them. They hate me. Um, so differential diagnosis, um, certainly sometimes things can be an irritated verruca. Sometimes it's an inflamed seborrheic keratosis. So when you irritate something, sometimes they see atypical cells when you biopsy it. So these lichen planus-like where there's inflammation next to a keratosis. So these are pretty common, like the picture I told you, uh, showed you on the bridge of the nose, but also can be on the back of the hand or the foot. This was a study that went back and reevaluated when they act, when people got this biopsy result in atypical squamous proliferation, and they went back to do something, what percent of the time was it actually skin cancer? So 55%, but not 100%, were a non-melanoma skin cancer. And they were very often a squam inside or an invasive squam, but importantly, 45% of them were not. So for some patients where my clinical suspicion was not that this was a squamous cell, I'm having them come back in and I'm taking a reshave of that area, or I'm punching around it pretty closely. But it's not necessarily that I'm presuming I have to send them for a big excision or Mohs surgery. But I think that also would be an option depending on sort of the concern of your patient. If they're an organ transplant patient, I think we tend to have a higher level of concern. But resampling is something that's helped me in this paper, made me think about that. So keeping in mind, I think sometimes I get caught in the trap of thinking of squamous cell as just non-melanoma skin cancer. And lumping it together with basal cell, I think, does it a disservice because the metastatic rate of squamous cell is 2%. 
So it's not zero, it's not even less than 1% like basal cell, but one out of 50 people will get metastatic squamous cell. Um, so I think keeping, of, keeping that in mind and managing this as completely as possible, especially since people tend to have many, many squamous cells or multiple squamous cells in their lifetime. So when can we be more worried that somebody is at risk for a dangerous squamous cell? So we can think of this due to features of the patient or features that are on the path report that might push us towards doing that excision for sure versus sometimes we uh, think about using a topical treatment or doing a curatage. So high-risk features, if on exam this lesion was larger than 20 millimeters, which is two centimeters, on a low-risk site, and this all comes from the NCCN guidelines, so the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has a really great website. It has flow charts for both uh, basal cell and squamous cell, and of course melanoma. They also have flow charts for cutaneous lymphoma, so what uh, Jeanette is uh, talking about here at the meeting. So if the lesion is poorly defined clinically, uh, would be a high-risk feature because now we're not really sure where that lesion stops and starts. It means we have trouble drawing margins and being confident in those margins. If a squamous cell is recurrent, this is now a more dangerous squamous cell, the risk of it recurring at that site or metastasizing is higher. Of course, immunosuppression, because now the immune system can't fight off the single cell that breaks off and makes its way into the lymphatics and a neurological symptom related to a squamous cell. So this, I would say, most often happens when it's, say, on the face. So a squamous cell that although clinically may appear small, but there's radiating uh, uh, sharp pains that might shoot up the forehead or on the face, shoot across the cheek. We had a woman on the back who had a sharp radicular pain or nerve pain, and she had a pretty aggressive squamous cell even though it was a low-risk site. So asking about those symptoms, especially if they seem nerve-related, like a shooting pain. Uh, anything that's rapidly growing, although the KA, the keratoacanthoma type of squamous cell, is a special type. That is a low-risk histologic type. But if you get a report back that says invasive squamous cell and that lesion is growing rapidly, that is an aggressive squamous cell. And especially if a squamous cell is arising in a pri at a site of prior inflammation, whether it's a prior stasis ulcer, chronic stasis dermatitis, a burn scar, discoid lupus, HS, anything that's been kind of chronically smoldering with inflammation, that squamous cell is no longer just a regular squamous cell. This squamous cell has a lot higher uh, potential for metastasizing. So we can think about our patient, but what information can we get from our path report that tells us that we maybe need to be a little more aggressive with the excision of this or management? And one is the degree of differentiation. So if something is poorly differentiated or has an acantholytic growth pattern, these are higher risk types of squames. I never scrape these. I never use topicals on these. I'm always cutting them out or having my Mohs surgeon cut them out. Our uh, pathologist now always reports the depth of a lesion. How many of you guys are getting reports where your pathologist is reporting the depth of your squamous cell? A few people. So this is starting to become more of a standard on the part of the pathologist. Just like with melanoma, we see all these characteristics typed out. That's 
like in its baby form of happening with squamous cell. Um, if your pathologist routinely does not report the degree of differentiation, I would ask for that. It's going to affect your clinical decision for that patient. Knowing something about how deep it goes is going to impact your clinical decision for that patient. And also the presence of perineural invasion. And what they're looking for when they're looking under the microscope is whether they see a nerve that is larger than one millimeter. So they will actually measure with the little um, measuring tape measuring tape. Microscopes don't have measuring tapes, but they do have li these little oculuses that they put on the microscope, and they can measure how big the nerve is, and if they see a tumor around that, they will report it. So these are high-risk features. When there are no high-risk features, you have a lot more options, all the things listed here. When you have a high-risk uh, squamous cell, you no longer want to cure at that. You don't want to take a chance rubbing a topical on that. Heck, radiation is not even my first choice unless somebody cannot have surgery. So for high-risk features, it's surgery, surgery, surgery. And keeping in mind that I think our patients like the idea of rubbing something topical on, again, sometimes they get exhausted of having surgery after surgery because so many of them have had so many skin cancers. But keeping in mind, if you look at the little gray cure rates that I put in here and the risk of uh, recurrence, which is on the other side, so here is the uh, chance of cure with curatage. This is pretty high. I think sometimes we forget how good uh, curatage works for even squamous cell skin cancer. The uh, recurrence rates are all over the place, probably because we're not always keeping track of some of those risk features. Um, again, I don't do this as often, especially in younger people, if it's on the scalp, the beard, or the genital area, because those are uh, more moderate or high-risk locations by the NCCN guidelines. Excisions, standard margin here is going to be four to six millimeters around the clinical edge of that squamous cell. So I usually go into the room, I put dots around where I think the cancer ends, and then from there I measure out four to six centimeters. Sometimes I'll take a slightly smaller margin if I'm at the edge of a cosmetic subunit, um, but otherwise going for four to six uh, millimeter margins. Cure rates, again, are really high. Recurrence rates are probably variable because of different features. Mohs, stunning um, response rate, but not every squame needs Mohs, and not every patient uh, wants to go for it. Radiation, really nice cure rates, but these recurrence rates are starting to creep up. And again, this is something that we recommend only if they're not able to have surgery. Because radiation is not once and done. You're usually going in for multiple treatments across multiple days. And you can see here that the cure rates for topical therapies Again, highly variable, probably because topicals can't get down in there very well, and it requires a very long period of treatment, typically four months or more. And so if you have a patient who has a thin squame, squame in situ, maybe it's an older person where you're not so worried about recurrence rate and they understand the limitations, that's where I think topicals have a, a, a place. So I tend to do a lot of curatage, and I think one of the things that I've learned about doing curatage is setting people's expectations, because this was a study that compared what people thought about their excision versus an EDNC. So people were more apt to be bothered by the appearance if they had a curatage compared to an excision. People appreciated the cosmetic appearance slightly more of the excision, and they felt like they got enough time no matter what. Um, so I tend to talk to people, especially about what their scar is going to look like. Sometimes having a white void of where the skin is otherwise, uh, you know, sort of evenly affected by solar lentigenes, that white spot is now very visible. They'd rather have a line uh, scar. So just keep that in mind as you're talking to your patients. 
but keeping in mind, I think our number one goal is to cure the cancer. So they need to understand that first, incorporating uh, counseling about what it's gonna look like comes second. So patient satisfaction is very high with non-melanoma skin cancer. We just need to help them. This is a pretty big basal cell. So basal cell skin cancer, what are our options for a relatively young guy? Looking back at this, you know, you're thinking about excising this, and it's gonna go from here to maybe here if you're gonna do a linear closure. I'm a huge fan of a purse string on a busy area, so I'll cut this down to fat. Then I put an absorbable suture into the dermis, sort of in and out of the dermis, and then you kind of cinch it down like a hefty bag. So it cinches down what was a big hole into a small one. It never completely reduces the, the defect entirely, but that circle can now stretch and move in whatever direction his back needs to. It's a little easier to live with, except that it has to granulate in from the bottom. It always looks super ugly right after you do it because the skin is all crenellated and raised up. That always flattens down. But what are our options here with this basal cell? This is a huge defect if we excise it, even if it is a purse string. Can we get by with topicals or curatage? What are our cure rates there? So keeping in mind, this is a big basal cell, and we're thinking not so much about the risk of METs, but the risk that he's gonna have to deal with it again uh, in the long term or even in the midterm in his lifetime. So this was on the trunk, that's a low risk area by the NCCN guidelines, but it was definitely bigger than two millimeters. So all of these thresholds are very similar uh, for basal cell skin cancer uh, as they were for squamous cell. There's no measurement here for area H because any lesion on area H, which is basically the head or the face, um, is a high risk lesion. Basal cells that are poorly defined. Todd has some pretty amazing pictures of, you know, what looks like a tiny little scab on the nose, and then he shows me, hey, look at this uh, case I just had, and the whole side of the nose is missing. So if you can't see the edge of a lesion very well, it means you probably don't know where the edge is, and that's a higher risk lesion for recurrence because you can't identify margins as easily. Um, a basal cell that's recurrent is a lot more likely to come back a second time if you don't cut it out. Again, people who are immunosuppressed in these same risk factors as squamous cells. Uh, for path report, so what are the, some of the concerns for a high-risk lesion, again, high-risk for recurrence? If it's infiltrative, again, this leads to that inability to see the edges clinically. So if you get a path report back that says infiltrative, micronodular, morpheiform, or any of these, because pathologists can use different words, they all like different ones, this is higher risk for recurrence because they can be hard to identify. Um, and keeping in mind that basal cells can have multiple growth patterns in the same tumor. So the downside of my approach, which is I usually take a little nick of the thing because I'm biopsying a lot of things on the face, that little nick is not representative of the growth pattern of the whole thing. It's representative of the part that I biopsied. So if you look at it and you think, gosh, I don't know if that was just a regular nodular basal cell. I know my biopsy said it's nodular, but it just looked a little bit matted down and some areas, there may be a different growth pattern in the other part of that basal cell. So just know that there is some sampling error that can go along with that. And of course, perineural invasion, this would be reported by your pathologist. 
So no high-risk features versus high-risk features. This looks very similar to the uh, treatment options for squamous cell because they do still work really well, and we want to think of them the same way. The cure rates are astonishingly high for curatage and for just regular excision in the office for basal cells because these are typically well-defined lesions. MOS, very impressive. Again, higher recurrence rates for radiation. Uh, high-risk features, excision and MOS are going to be your main thing. Again, topical therapies. The cure rates are a bit higher here for basal cell compared to the 20 to 90 for squamous cell, um, but the three-year recurrence rate is 12%. So we stick to topical therapies for superficial basal cells. And again, these are superficial basal cells where we're not suspicious there's another growth pattern in this lesion um, because the risk of recurrence is going to be higher even for a nodular basal cell. Nodular basal cell not a high-risk type. It's not on that prior slide, but it's the thickness of that lesion, and the topical medicine just can't get down through it as readily or as completely. So what's kind of interesting about pigmented basal cell, that doesn't, it's not typically reported as a type of basal cell, but this is very useful to us as clinicians because if you suspect something is a basal cell clinically and you get back that it's a superficial or nodular type, usually what you see as the edge of the pigment is the edge of the cancer. So this is one of those times where we can really reduce our treatment margin because what we see clinically is so close to what is happening in the tissue. And so for patients with pigmented basal cell, I reduce my margins pretty substantially. I've gone as low as two millimeters just because of the impact on uh, the cosmetic margin. So again, that the dermatoscopic border truly is correlated with what you see histologically, and that the cure rate for this, by using the edge of that pigment, your cure rates are really high with your surgical excisions. So for this gentleman, um, he no-showed. So we did the biopsy, and then he didn't come back. So what can we do with that? Why do people not come in after I just said, you have cancer? It's not denial. It is sometimes denial. So the number one reason is actually denial. So 71% of people who uh, had a biopsy knew it was cancer, did not come in because they were just sort of in denial. They thought, oh yeah, you know, cancer, that just goes away on its own. Um, you know, it's not important for me to get rid of this four centimeter basal cell that's on my back. And they come up a lot with lots of reasons. Um, and this was a study looking at, again, why people didn't come in for treatment of, of skin cancers. And the range of like delay of getting treatment is pretty wide here. So somebody didn't come in for 20 years to have something treated. Um, but typically people are missing appointments uh, from their pathology diagnosis diagnosis anywhere from two to six months. And, you know, that can be frustrating. I'm worrying about them, but is it a threat to their life or their health if we put this off, especially if it's something like a basal cell? It's not. And I'll show you some data on how slowly basal cells actually change over time. Now, if that's an aggressively growing squam and squamous cell in general, we do track those people down. Basal cells, less worrisome. But this is an, another very typical patient with non-melanoma skin cancer that I see in my office. So he comes in and we're looking at at least three superficial basal cell skin cancers on his upper back at the same time. So how do we approach the treatment of somebody who just has sort of a field of basal cell skin cancers? How do we make it work for them and make it work for us to be convenient? 
And you know, what I thought when I was going through training was, you know, that I need to biopsy everything, I need to scrape everything, we are going to completely eradicate skin cancer from the face of the planet. But after being at the VA for three years and looking back at my patients, I was like, what am I doing? Am I, am I saving these guys' lives? What impact am I making? Am I making it worse? even by doing what I'm doing and cutting out every basal cell that they have. So it made me kind of think about what our data shows about basal cell, especially as our patients get older and older. Um, so of 100,000 people with basal cell um, that died within a year, um, this is going up. So there's more and more older people who are dying within a year of us treating them for basal cell. Um, that basal cell was not going to limit their life. There was other stuff that was going on. So as uncomfortable as it is, I'm starting to talk to patients about, you know, I can see in your medical history, you've been going through some of these things. You've got the prostate cancer. You're going through the chemotherapy for that. You know, let me tell you about basal cell. This is something we can put on the back burner if you want to. I'm not dictating it. I'm giving them information. I want them to have a plan and to not make something uncomfortable for them, just another doctor's appointment when you're already going through a lot. If they're in a nursing home, if they're in a wheelchair, if they have poor mobility, these are all poor prognostic indicators. And so this ePrognosis website, I think, has been really helpful for me to think about when people are maybe not going to benefit from me aggressively treating their multiple basal cells and balancing the risk of the basal cell versus the risk of the procedure. And uh, you can have complication rates uh, with procedures, and some rates are as high as 25%, depending on the location um, and the size of the excision. So this is a study looking at basal cells that were excised, 121 of them, but when they were looked at by the pathologist, we didn't actually get it all out. And then they followed those up. And after five years, 93% of them were not visible. So what they're seeing histopathologically when we gave them that slice of skin is not being borne out in the clinic, that perhaps some of the inflammatory reaction of that surgery is chewing up the little bit that's extra at the edge. So again, I think this helps me to keep in mind that I can observe some of these wounds even for up to five years afterwards if I didn't get it all in a patient who really doesn't want to go through another surgery or that I think isn't going to be benefited by another surgery. But again, I make that decision with them. And this is a little bit of a brain shift, like this idea that we would leave cancer on people, that we would talk to people about not treating a skin cancer, but keeping in mind there's lots of other things that people are going through. And this is one of the least risky cancers for a lot of patients. So what is that natural history? Well, this study could not be done in the United States, but it did happen in a very small, isolated uh, island in Greece. Um, so a friend of mine from UCSF, uh, Eleni, she got paid to go vacation in Greece a couple of times and count basal cells on people. Um, and so what she found out was that for a number of people with basal cells, not all of them are symptomatic. A lot of people are not bothered, but about a third are bothersome. Um, for a lot of people with basal cell, when you go back and look at a basal cell years later, there's not a change in size. So 40 to 46% of people, the basal cell that was there when she saw it the first year, it was no different the second year. Um, about half of them did increase in size, but what was that increase? 3% per year. 3% of the surface area of that thing got a little bit bigger. 
And I think that's just important to keep in mind. So that gentleman who had a little bit of denial about a superficial basal cell that's probably been growing for the last 15 years, the fact that he had a no-show and finally got into the clinic six months later, that basal cell was perhaps not bigger at all or 3% bigger. So I think that's also important for me to keep in mind as I talk to my patients about this. So for this patient, um, one of my approaches is to use my dermatoscope, be suspicious that it's basal cell, to have a conversation about what our approach could be. And it could be that we just continue to monitor these, but that's where I need to be pretty comfortable with my dermatoscope, or we can go back and even biopsy. Just because I biopsy something and it comes back as a superficial basal cell, I talk to the patient about the option, and we decide together if we're going to treat that basal cell. Um, sometimes I'll do the biopsy and then scrape it at the same time. Again, my dermatoscope has really helped me to feel more confident that what I'm looking at as a basal cell decreases the chance that I'm going to correct something that day that ultimately comes back as something different. But I always talk to the patient about the chance that I'm going to scrape something that didn't really need it. I have yet to have a patient have a problem with that when we talk about it. So a lot of people do like the option of having a biopsy and a scraping at the same visit. Um, I can typically do three, especially of this size, uh, without too much uh, extra time. So the other thing that the VA taught me was related to um, actinic keratoses, and that I used to, I think, wear a holster with a cryac in it. And again, I was eradicating AKs from the face of the planet in every vet that was in the Philly VA. Um, and it was, I thought I was helping people, and I was hearing my attendings come in and say, yeah, he's got a precancer right here. So again, this idea of how I hear things and how I say things to my patients I'm impacted, they're impacted. Actinic keratoses are not precancer. It's not that every single one turns into skin cancer. So blasting every single one off patients only serves to make them slightly miserable or very miserable. So I've really changed how I say things and I think that this needs to start to happen, uh, certainly even in organized medicine. This is the Skin Cancer Foundation website. So risk of transformation can really vary. Now, certainly we're not gonna treat everyone the same. People who are immunosuppressed have a higher chance of developing skin cancer. So I'm not going to just observe people who have immunosuppression or a history of an organ transplant. And the challenge is, and, and the, uh, I think, challenge that I've gotten from other people is, well, you can see the same genetic mutations in an actinic keratosis as you do in a squamous cell. The problem is we're not seeing rates of 100%. We're not seeing every actinic keratosis turn into squamous cell. So while you see, may see this genetic mutation, it's obvious that you need multiple hits. You need more than one genetic mutation in order to create squamous cell skin cancer. So a lot of studies have found no reduction in the rates of squamous cell by completely eradicating actinic keratoses from patients. This is something I think that was grandfathered into my practice without me realizing that there is no data to support my approach in doing this. And so for younger people, yes, I'm trying to decrease the burden. Sometimes they're bothered by the symptom of an actinic keratosis. Sometimes they just like having smooth skin. But I'm changing the reason for why I'm talking to people about the treatment. And not all actinic keratoses are created equal. So when do I talk to people about treatment? Well, something that is pretty thick and hyperkeratotic, something that's pretty wide on this patient, compared to these actinic keratoses that you can just barely see in this picture and are better palpated. These are small, these are thin, these are not bothering this patient. 
depending on how much bother this patient has from actinic keratosis, yeah, we're going to maybe treat either with cryo or field therapy. This is one of the times where I'm not giving him the option of opting out. I'm often saying, I'm kind of worried about this one. This one's pretty big. We either need to biopsy it or we need to freeze it. So actinic keratosis management, what's the best? 5-FU keeps showing up as having the highest cure rates. So not 5-FU 0.5%, uh, that's Carrick as a brand, but the full strength uh, 5-FU has the highest cure rates and the highest cure rates after one year. So cure rates, 75% um, uh, improvement. I put this in from one of the studies that I presented earlier. This was, again, a randomized controlled trial looking at 75% improvement that was maintained at one year. These were treatment on the head and neck. It was uh, pretty low for, oh, this shifted off. It should be over here with PDT, 35%, uh, pretty low, 29%. Mikomad had the second highest rate, but 5-FU had, again, slightly lower than this prior study, but a pretty decent um, uh, maintenance at one year. And keeping in mind that cryo is one of those things, you know, I usually say, oh, we're going to freeze that off. Let me go grab my cryo. I walk out. I grab when I walk back in. They're like, boy, that was fast. You know, we're just so ready and so equipped to do this. It's just so fast um, that I think we do this a lot, and it still is the number one procedure. And it's been targeted as a reimbursement because we do it so often. So I think keeping that in mind. And this is one of the things that I talk to people about when we're thinking about treating an actinic keratosis or not, is that we don't just have harsh field therapies. We don't just have cryotherapy. We have other things. So this is a study looking at the effect of sunscreen. And it was shown not just to prevent more sun damage, but when people rub on sunscreen, they found 25% fewer actinic keratoses after seven months of using sunscreen. The people who were given placebo lotion, I don't know about the ethics of this, where it's like you get sunscreen or you think you have sunscreen, but you don't. Um, but even when people rub on lotion, they had a 20% reduction in how many actinic keratoses they had. So actinic keratoses are a little bit of a waxing and waning condition as well. Sometimes they may be more scaly, sometimes less. Sometimes they completely resolve on their own. Again, it's probably not those real thick hyperkeratotic lesions. It's probably the smaller ones, which is why uh, lots of studies have shown target the things that are pinker, thicker, and broader when you're uh, worried about treatment or uh, risk of transformation into squamous cell. And vitamin B3, so that nicotinamide or niacinamide um, that we talked about for chemo prevention of non-melanoma skin cancer, was initially studied for actinic keratoses. The same group that did the uh, non-melanoma skin cancer started off looking at what the effect of this vitamin was for AKs. So this is really nice to talk to people about because it's like three for one if they start this vitamin. Um, when they dosed people with nicotinamide or niacinamide for AKs, they noticed that at even one a day, they had 30% fewer actinic keratoses. But when you're taking the dosage needed for chemo prevention of non-melanoma skin cancer, you're getting a slightly greater reduction, so 35%. Um, and again, before I started prescribing it, I had to write this down and really make sure that people were getting the right form of vitamin B3. And some of our research has shown that this is a very cheap and very affordable vitamin, so people should not be spending a lot of uh, money on some kind of boutique form of vitamin B3. So in summary, I think I have changed my approach to non-melanoma skin cancer, recognizing that squamous still can be a very bad actor. We need to be thoughtful of the risk factors, especially of squamous cell for high risk. Um, but thinking about basal cell, 
thinking about the risk factors of that cancer and that patient, thinking about what I'm trying to achieve for that patient. I'm generally not saving anyone's life by treating basal cell skin cancer. So my goal is to work with them, knowing that they're likely to have multiple of these over their lifetime, to find a combination of treatments where, yes, maybe we're more aggressive earlier in their lifetime, 30, 40, 50-year-olds, but as people are getting older, easing them into or starting to have that conversation about what our goals are. And so far, the patients that I'm working with, they seem very happy and just excited with the idea that we're having this conversation about what the actual natural history of this cancer is, and we're not just continuing to cut, cut, cut uh, without some thoughtful discussion, I think, of what that cancer means to them in their life. AK management, 5-FU, still the most effective thing, but the side benefit of nicotinamide for AKs for these patients. Um, I don't have any quiz questions, but uh, one of the things I'm always curious is, are there any you know, one-liners, practical points, things that are going to change your practice? So if you're typing in questions, please feel free to type in any takeaways that you have. And we'll do the evaluations and take questions. Thanks so much for hanging in there this afternoon. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? I'm going to start prescribing nicotinamide. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Uh, so rebound flares of squamous cell, so I have not heard or seen, though I would expect when I think we use the term rebound flare, it makes me think that things get even worse than they were before. And I think that the more likely thing to happen with stopping any chemo prevention like we've seen with acetretin is just a slow recurrence of what the rate would have been. So I don't typically counsel people that, you know, things are going to be even worse than they were before. Or things are just going to explode out of control. I don't think that there's any data to support that. But I think telling people if this works, but then you stop it, things are going to slowly come back. So I don't recommend a specific company. Um, I leave that to our pharmacy, and that's one of the nice things about prescribing it is I 1,000% trust my pharmacy to stock what is reputable. Um, and so I think the challenge is when we're leaving it to patients to go out and find something on Amazon, they might be getting the $2 niacinamide from gosh knows where, or, you know, like the $30, you know, completely all natural organic, which, you know, may or may not be necessary. So that's also why I like prescribing it. <coughs> um, diagnosis prescribing acetretin. So I usually use chemo prevention of squamous cell uh, for that one. Uh, sometimes I have to write letters, but it's a pretty rare day. Um, I usually tell them that I'll save them a, a bunch of money by not uh, billing them for excisions, and then they seem to understand. Can you scroll up a little bit, Brian? Thanks. Yeah, so the website for those treatment guidelines is the National comprehensivecancernetwork.org, so nccn.org. Uh, you do have to create an account, but it's free. You just put in your email and create a password, and you can get all of the flowcharts for everything.
with curatage. So I think this is great. The way I explain it to my patients is we're gonna do this scraping. We know that we've gotten it all based on how it looks, how it feels, and how it sounds. And so when I'm scraping, I put, again, dots around where I think the clinical edge of that cancer is, and I do it before I numb it, because especially of basal cells, if you numb it, you have no idea where the pink stopped and started. Sometimes you, you can use the scale of a squamous cell to get a hint, um, so I've made that mistake a couple of times, but not lately, thankfully. Um, so put those dots, then numb it, and then I'm scraping past the dots. So my goal is to make sure I scrape all of my surgical marker off. Um, and again, the patient's gonna hear a little bit of this raspy or rough sound, and so I prep them on that ahead of time. And I try to frame it as, I am listening for that. That's how I know that I got down to dermis. Um, but the feel too, so especially with a basal cell, it feels kind of gummy or loose, and that's how you know you got that all off. Um, I always prep people ahead of time because some of them are used to surgery. They're like, well, how are you going to know you got it all? Are you going to send something off to the lab? We don't send any of our curettings off to the lab because we already know what it is. It's not going to tell me anything useful other than, yes, it was a basal cell. Um, and so I tell people, you know, it's on the basis of these very large studies that the cure rate is somewhere around 96 to 100%. Um, can you scroll up just a little bit more, Brian? So topical treatment, I'd have to say that I really don't use topical treatment so much. So every time I do it, I'm looking for the latest and greatest. Sometimes what I'm doing is 5-FU, again, because it is the, um, the strongest of all the topical regimens for most things, including actinic keratoses, basal cells, and squamous cells. It's pretty much always twice a day and for a minimum of six weeks. So, oh, I answered that question. No, we don't send that down because I'm not looking for confirmation of what the diagnosis was. I already knew that. If the thought was, well, I kind of wanted to get more information about that growth pattern because if I found out in the curettings this was an infiltrative uh, basal cell, I'd go back and do an excision. Your pathologist can't tell you anything from curettings about growth patterns. So it's just going to get you confirmation again of what your diagnosis was. So after curatage, monitoring for recurrence. This is a great question because so often a scar can have the same pink and scale sometimes of a basal cell. And I have a few patients in central Pennsylvania, for some reason, we have a lot of basal cell nevus syndrome. Um, and so we have some patients who have elected not to take Aravedge or Sinitigib. And so we're just doing a lot of biopsies and scrapings. And I've gotten myself in trouble where I was kind of cherry picking basal cells and moving from one body site to another. And then I went back to the back and I'm like, gosh, is that a scar or a basal cell? And it can be pretty tough even with dermoscopy. And I always feel really bad when I biopsy something and it's just an old scar. So my approach now is just to go body site by body site. And I start with high-risk areas and I clean up the face and around the eyes. And then we start to move our way down to the neck. Oftentimes it's not going to the head. But even in people who don't have basal cell nevus syndrome, I talk to them about how I want to start with the things that are in one area that seems to be the most affected. Because if I start moving around, I'm going to have trouble keeping track, even with great you know, clinical photos and everything. It just can be very difficult. So 3% per, uh, sorry, per month. Yes, I apologize. It was 3% per month. Non-melanoma skin cancer. Do I ever watch and follow biopsy-proven KAs? 
Uh, yeah, so absolutely. For a lot of people, we will biopsy something. It comes back as one of those low-risk KAs. We have them come back in. Um, you know, we've talked to them about the biopsy report, you know, one week post-op, and uh, we're setting up a curatage and excision, and then they come in and there's nothing there. And we talk to them, you know, if something grows back, please let me know. We can go back and treat it. We also give them the option of maybe doing the curatage, and I'd say it's about 50-50. Some people elect to just have that peace of mind that we did that scraping. The chance of recurrence is lower after doing an excision, or sorry, after doing the curatage. Um, but as long as I think we educate patients about about what is a sign of recurrence and that they should call us and we can document that, then I think that you know, we're both adults. As long as I share the information with them, I think that they can participate in the management of that condition. Uh, so the compounded 5-FU and calcipotriene. I would say that I've been slightly disappointed by that in my personal practice. Uh, Jenny and I were talking about it earlier, and I think she's had a lot more luck uh, with using it. I think it's a fantastic option. I think I probably just need to do a better job of choosing who I use it in, and maybe some of the people with really thick hyperkeratotic lesions, it's not that short treatment time. Even if you extend it out to a week, I'm not sure that it's working for them. Drug-drug um, interactions. So no, there's no major drug-drug interactions with um, vitamin B3 or niacinamide, which is really nice. And again, it's really well tolerated. It's one of the water-soluble vitamins, so we don't have to worry about it building up in people's fat and becoming toxic. Um, so ingenol mebutate, so that was in a couple of different studies looking at curates for actinic keratoses. And the curate for ingenol mebutate tends to hover somewhere around 40%, whereas curates for 5-FU tend to be a lot higher, somewhere between 75 and 90%. So even though the treatment period for ingenol mebutate is pretty short, and I think it's appropriate that we talk to our patients about that. Look, we have a lot of different options. Some require very short periods of time, but they have lower cure rates. Some are gonna give you more side effects and it's gonna take longer, but the cure rate and the freedom from recurrence is probably gonna be longer with 5-FU. Uh, once weekly application of 5-FU. So I don't use the intermittent dosing of 5-FU. Um, I think a lot of the studies that I've read reinforce that we're not gonna get as much improvement if we limit irritation. So if the patient you're working with really can't tolerate any kind of side effect, but you are willing to accept a lower cure rate, then I think that's totally appropriate. Um, I would say in general, I'm trying to get people through things, clear them as much as possible, because that makes my job easier. If there's not a lot of actinic keratoses all over the place, I have less to look at on that patient. I have less risk of missing a squamous cell. So for a lot of those patients, I'm just trying to clean things up so it makes the skin exam um, a bit more targeted and easier. Can you scroll up again, Brian? Thanks. How do I feel about recurrent Bowens or superficial basal cell? That's a really good question. So again, this is where the textbooks are gonna say that you should cut out any recurrent basal cell. If I am looking at somebody who is, you know, 70 and has a lot of comorbidities and you know their life expectancy is not great, if their quality of life is not great, um, then I'm not going to. And we're just gonna have that conversation about how the cure rate is not gonna be quite as high because I'm curating something that was already recurrent. Um, somebody who is young, spry, who, you know, we're talking about this, yeah, I, I'm gonna cut out a recurrent squamer or a recurrent uh, squamous in situ. 
Oh, takeaway, good. So cryon curette lesions. Yep, good. So uh, when I was thinking about um, that picture of the guy's back with the little pink dots, um, those are superficial basal cells. So my approach is I biopsy and curette right at the same visit. Um, but I think that maybe that's what you were referring to. Uh, standard of care for melanoma, uh, wide excision uh, is five millimeter margin. Now the difference here is lentigo maligna melanoma or lentigo maligna. Um, sometimes um, I think people outside of dermatology see lentigo and stop there, not realizing that the phrase lentigo maligna is actually an in situ uh, melanoma, just an area of sun damage. Some of those studies uh, looking at the margin that's needed to clear lentigo maligna, the in situ form, are as uh, wide as is 11 millimeters. So know that lentigo maligna is a different melanoma in situ than, say, superficial spreading melanoma. Usually lentigo maligna is in a field of lots of other sun damage, and it can be very hard for us to, again, clinically see the edge of that lesion. So for a lentigo maligna that is on a field of lots of other sun damage, my margin gets bigger because I know that I can't trust my eye. For a lentigo maligna that doesn't have a lot of sun damage around it, then I squeeze it down closer to about five millimeters. And I tend to have the talk with that patient. You know, this is one of those times where we might get a positive margin. You might need a second excision. Let me see what we can do with this first one. Um, it's nice also to know that some Mohs surgeons will do uh, slow Mohs or very typical Mohs for these types of lesions. So if that's available in your area, I highly recommend it. Um, Todd Carty does um, a version of Mohs, but using permanent sections for our lentigo malignas. Can you scroll up a little more, Brian? Okay. So any utility in using 5-FU prophylactically? Um, no, but I think that that's the benefit of using niacinamide these days, is that in order to prevent more actinic keratosis for that patient, we can do this. Again, uh, tretinoin is not going to be a prophylaxis for actinic keratosis and skin cancers. So you go, can go ahead and skip that. If they want to use it for other reasons, I think that's okay, but just for us knowing and them knowing that it's not going to be you know, effective for that indication. So yes, I absolutely, for a lot of my patients, because a lot of people come to me from a distance, um, because it's challenging for them to travel, I absolutely biopsy and curette things at the same visit. Usually it's when I feel pretty confident with my clinical exam and dermatoscopic exam that I'm looking at a superficial or nodular basal cell. Can you scroll up just a little more, Brian? Smoke evacuators during electrodesiccation. Um, so I think this is a question of comfort. Um, I'm not worried so much about the smoke plume when it comes from a basal cell or squamous cell or even uh, you know any other skin surgery except for uh, warts. So definitely if you're lasering or doing any kind of surgery on a wart, have a smoke evacuator there. Um, but the smell is just unpleasant. So we often tell people, you know, it smells like a burning hair dryer. A lot of our people are bald men, so they don't really get that. So you know, we smell, it smells like the dentist because all of that same material that's kind of burning the collagen, the keratins, um, it's the same smell. Um, and people kind of joke about it, at least in central Pennsylvania. They're like, I won't even tell you. They just joke about it and they're pretty funny. Um, we're about to eat, so I'm not going to say anything. Um, but thank you so much. Really fantastic questions. I hope that you got one or two things you can take home and use as a pearl. Thanks again. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.